We're exploring faith today in this passage, and faith is a challenging thing. And so I hope that you feel ready to engage at the question of what is faith. Uh, as a church, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, and if you're just joining us, I want to give you a quick recap. Uh, the aim of Mark's Gospel, as it unfolds, is to get us asking the question, who is Jesus? You see this in every encounter. Someone encounters Christ and they ask, who is Jesus? Jesus heals someone, they say, who is Jesus? Jesus teaches something astounding, who is Jesus? And from the get-go, Mark has given the readers the inside scoop. Jesus is the Son of God. But to understand what that means, Mark asks us to walk with Jesus on the way to the cross. Hi, Ansley. <laughs> I guess you didn't want to go to kids' church. Uh, this is my daughter, in case you haven't met my daughter, Ansley. Now, to say that Jesus is the Son of God, that is good and it's well, but how are we supposed to believe these things about Jesus? That's my other daughter. <laughs> Let's just press pause for a second. <laughs> They're going to get grounded for the first time. No. That'd be like epic pastor dad fail. So our passage today is Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, and it's a passage, unsurprisingly, about faith. You know, the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, that is a matter of faith. And faith is no small part of what it means to follow Jesus or to believe in God at all. And the helpful thing about this passage is it fills in the picture, what is faith? Because if we're honest, faith is a little tricky to define. When it comes to the Christian journey, it's more of like the amorphous blob part of our journey. We're just not quite sure how to exactly say what it is. And so, whether you've considered yourself a follower of Jesus, whether you're just dipping your toe in and exploring, or even if you're you know, antagonistic toward all of this and you're just here because someone invited you and you just want to show respect to them, my hope is that we all leave with a clearer picture of what sincere faith looks like. Now, something that is helpful is that Mark shows us faith is not as narrow as it's often depicted. According to Mark, Faith is not believing despite the evidence. Faith isn't ignoring serious questions or even free from doubt. The faith we encounter today is way too messy to be any of those things. It's there and it's not there at the same time in a single person. So here's the big idea I want us to explore this morning in Mark. Your faith is only as good as what you put it in. Your faith is only as good as what you put it in. So open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Uh, if you're handed a Bible on the way in, it'll be in there somewhere. I don't know the page number. One of you can yell it out. Uh, and it'll also be up on the screen. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Have you ever said something that accidentally triggered a massive argument? You know, and you realize mid-argument that what you said 
has nothing to do with what you're now arguing about. It just, that was really about something else. Like yesterday, Julia asked me to do something while I was making coffee, and I was a little snarky. Uh, it was because I was upset about something else, but I just wanted my coffee. And, and then we got in this big debate while we're lying in bed rehashing it. You know, like, you look at it, it's like, well, I thought I just asked you to do something while you're making coffee. It turns out you just hold a really good grudge. Uh, a similar tension is at play in our passage today. At first glance, we would look at this passage and say, this is an exorcism. And yes, it is, but it's really about a deeper issue. That exorcism is really about this, the faith required to follow Jesus. Jesus, John, Peter, and James, they've just come back down from the mountaintop where the transfiguration took place. If you don't know what that is, it's the time when Jesus, to his closest disciples, said, here's who I am, look and see. His glory was revealed as the Son of God, fully God, fully man. But here's the thing. Not only did John, Peter, and James fail to understand what took place on that mountain, when they rejoined the rest of the disciples, they discover this huge debate and argument ensuing. Back on the ground, things are messy, really messy. A father brought his son to the disciples to cast out a demon, and it didn't go well. The disciples, they couldn't do it. They had no power, and now they're in an argument with the scribes who probably think this is proof that the movement of Jesus is blasphemous, and it's an odd scene, this huge argument. No one wants to be involved in this. And for many of us, we think demons and spirits and miracles and healings, like, this is not how we see the world. Yet, even if you were to hit pause and say, you know what, I'm going to adapt to the worldview presented here. Even if you said, fine, I'll enter the story, you know, miracles, demons, and all. There's still a deeper issue. We're afraid of disappointment. Deeply afraid of disappointment. If we permit that miracles can happen, it opens us up to wondering, well, why didn't a miracle happen for me when I most needed it? Why did a miracle not happen for my friend James who lost his two-year-old son when he most needed it? After all, what about the father in this passage? Here is a man who is certainly weighed down with grief from caring for a tormented son, a son who is unable to speak to him. They can't converse. And he's willing to open himself up to a miracle, the possibility of a miracle. And I bet it was a stretch for him. He's probably exhausted every option available. And he hears this movement of Jesus, and it's growing, and he hears that the followers of Jesus, his disciples, are going from city to city, healing people, and then he hears they're in town, and so he says, you know what, I'll go to them. Maybe what they do for others can be done for me. And so he asks for help. He takes the risk, and they can do nothing for him. Actually, Mark says in verse 18, they were not able... But more literally, it's, they had no power. What a disappointment. And this brings us closer to our concern about miracles. If in faith, you're willing to say miracles happen, if you permit the possibility and even say, I'm going to give Christianity a shot, what if it just leads to this experience? What if it actually has no power? You see, deep down, we're afraid. We're afraid of being let down or disillusioned or fooled or disappointed. And so what's the point of signing up for a faith that could possibly make no difference in our life, that could possibly have no power? Even if 
you decide not to put your faith in God or the miraculous. It doesn't mean that you're suddenly neutral. You place your faith in something. We all do it. And whatever it is, you can't escape the risk of disappointment. You, and you definitely can't escape the experience of being powerless. If our kids get sick, if our parents start ailing, if your company downsizes, if there's a natural disaster, you face your powerlessness. And to deal with this experience of powerlessness that we all face at some point in our lives, we place our faith in something. You see, if the father were alive today, he would place his faith in medicine and doctors, and that wouldn't be a bad idea. But what about those of us, many of you in this room, who have rare diseases or illnesses that evade diagnosis, much like the father's son here? What happens? You know all too well. You're referred from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist, until finally someone sets you down and says, I'm sorry, we can do nothing for you. You're just going to have to learn to live with this. You see, your faith at best is in a system that might help some and disappoint others. And it could even disappoint you. Medicine's good. Doctors are good. Faith in it isn't a bad thing to do, but it doesn't free you from disappointment. But there's still other places we can place our faith, like in humanity's goodness. Uh, I was at a citywide prayer breakfast, this big thing at the Vancouver Club. I don't know why they invited me. And uh, a council member of the city of Vancouver was asked to share and uh, her opening remarks, I won't forget this. This was her opening remarks at a prayer breakfast. I do not have faith in God. Okay, <laughs> we're off to a good start. Uh, but that doesn't mean I don't have faith. I thought it was interesting. And she went on. I'm an atheist. But I have faith in humanity. Faith in the goodness of each of us. And then she told an amazing story of human uh, humans, people, coming around her to help her out of a dark time. This sort of faith in humanity only works if we're selectively observing people, looking at parts of their lives and not their whole lives, or selectively observing what's going on in the world, only looking at the good things and not the atrocities that are happening right now. You see, if we put our faith in humanity's goodness, I guarantee you disappointment. And while the human spirit can rally together and overcome obstacles and do incredible things, we're still ultimately powerless to so many things. So what do we do? Well, most of us, what we do is we place our faith not in God, not in things outside of ourselves. We place our faith in ourselves. And this works. You know what's best. You know what's right. You can make the shots. It works until it doesn't, until the day you disappoint yourself. Think about the disciples here. After all, they've cast out demons before. What happened? Why couldn't they do it this time? Jesus is going to tell them in a few verses. It's because you didn't pray. Their faith, they, they started to believe in their own hype, right? Their faith went from being in Christ to being in themselves. And what was the result? They had no power. They let themselves down. My point is everybody has faith in something. And my point is also that the risk of faith may involve disappointment. But that's true of faith, period, no matter what you put it in, because it's just true of the human experience. You can't escape powerlessness and disappointment and risk. That's just part of what it means to be alive. But I want to be clear about this. When faith disappoints, when faith disappoints, it's not because of our faith. It's because of what we've put our faith in. 
And when we're disappointed by a system or by a person or a thing that we put our faith in, it's tempting to say, I'm done with faith. I'm not going to have faith. After all, why would I want to open myself up to God of all people if he's just going to disappoint me too or I feel like he's disappointed me in the past? Well, my question is, what does Jesus have to say to all of this? Because he's watching this unfold. He's seeing the father experience disappointment, risking faith. He's seeing the disciples experiencing disappointment, having faith in themselves. What does Jesus have to say? Look at verse uh, 19. Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, if you've never heard Jesus say anything before, this is probably a difficult starting point. Uh, Jesus, he's not just grieved by the situation he walks into. What does he say? You generation, you faithless generation. It seems a little melodramatic. I mean, if I had a conflict with someone in our church and I came up on stage and I was just like, you faithless people, you're all terrible. Like that would be way disproportionate reaction to a single conflict. What is going on here? Jesus is grieving over the faithlessness of a generation because he's talking about a prevalent and repeating pattern that happens over and over and over and over again throughout history. And it's a fundamental issue. When Jesus, he calls the generation faithless, he has the exodus in mind. But not the nice, happy, beautiful part of the exodus. Not the part where God faithfully delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into freedom. That's not what he has in mind. He has the people's faithless response in mind. Almost immediately, the very people, the very people God had saved dramatically began to question God's trustworthiness. They had visibly and tangibly seen the miracles of God, and yet they began to question and doubt the promises and his ability to even follow through on his promises. And they began to be afraid. The reality of being with God in his presence in the wilderness did not meet their expectations. And so, rather than recalibrate their expectations or examine their hearts, they began to complain and grumble. They made accusations. God has only brought us out into this wilderness uh, so that we could die. And the first church committee formed, the Back to Egypt committee, uh, you know, first death by committee in scriptures. Uh, you know, <laughs> slavery. <laughs> All the ministry people found that joke funny. Don't worry about it. <laughs> slavery in Egypt was better than this supposed freedom with God. And so what did God call that generation? Faithless. Their actions showed what they really believed. God isn't trustworthy. God isn't good. God isn't able to deliver on his promises. So when Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? It's because as the son of God, as the eternal God, this is not the first time Jesus has had to deal with this issue. And it won't be the last but I know you're smart, smart people. I know you're a couple steps ahead of me. You're thinking, hold up, preacher. Uh, I thought you said everybody has faith in something. And here Jesus is saying we can be faithless. Just because God calls the people in the wilderness faithless, it doesn't mean there's now this empty space where faith used to reside. They still believed in God. And their faith in themselves remained intact. After all, they think they know what's best and right and true. Instead, 
They shifted their, their faith. They put their faith back into the false gods and systems of Egypt. Their faith was just redirected. So where you place your faith determines whether you act in faithfulness toward God or faithlessness toward God. If you believe God isn't there, or he is there but he's just not trustworthy or good, this is still a statement of faith because you can't prove these things beyond a shadow of a doubt any more than I can. But from God's perspective, this is called faithlessness. Because faith is fundamentally relational. It has a direction. It has a partner. It has an attachment, so to speak. Imagine a faithless spouse. The spouse should be acting one way, with love and fidelity and faithfulness, but instead they act the opposite. And they act in a way that entirely compromises and undermines the relationship by giving their affections and even their body to another. They're faithless, right? They were faithful to the spouse, but it's changed directions. Now they're faithful toward the new romance or the new person or the sex or whatever. But now that they're faithless to their spouse, it doesn't mean they stopped believing they had a spouse. It's not like they're saying, whoa, whoa, hold up. I was never married. That person never existed. What I'm doing is perfectly fine and just. No, their fundamental belief about the relationship is what has changed. They've bought into the lie, oh, I'm not satisfied. Only someone else can satisfy me. Or the love is, isn't God. This is irreparable. Or monogamy is not really popular, you know, popular or possible. Uh, whatever it is, it's led them to become faithless toward their spouse. But do you see? Faith is still happening. It's still being pointed towards something. Which means this, and if you call yourself a follower of Jesus or you believe in God, this really matters. I want you to hear this. You can believe in God. You can see God do incredible things in your life, but still be faithless. Yet despite humanity's repeating pattern of faithlessness, despite our own faithlessness, despite the grief that it strikes into the heart of Christ, God does not withhold his compassion and mercy from us. What does he do? Look at verse 19 again. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It, was off, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. From childhood, this boy has been tormented, burned, nearly drowned. This tormenting spirit has been trying to destroy him and has even removed his ability to communicate. And here's a father who any father in this room knows how desperate he probably would be and more. And he, he's desperate and he's faced disappointment in his life, but he's still willing to try. And Jesus says, if you can, you come, you, you're coming to me and you're saying, if? And now again, if this is your first exposure to Jesus, like, really? Like, at a gut level, we have a lot of empathy for this father. 
Why is Jesus being such a stickler? I mean, it's hard enough to take a risk. Most of us have a challenge with being, you know, risk tolerant, so to speak. But to take that risk and be disappointed and then even say, I'm going to try again. Wow! Like, shouldn't his faith be commended? But Jesus says, if? Here's what we need to understand. Jesus is compassionate. He says, bring the boy to me. He'll go on to show compassion. But the issue is faith. Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. In other words, if you understood who you're approaching, if you understood who I am, if you put your faith in me, you would know there's no if. You would know that I'm the son of God and that I am able to do what you're asking. So in other words, Jesus just turns the table on him. He says, the issue isn't with me, the issue is with you and your faith. And while we wonder why Jesus pushes back like this, we can see that it does something beautiful. Because it's this pushback from Jesus that suddenly the man cries out. He cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. What a declaration, what a relief. We have to be grateful and glad this was preserved in Scripture for us. Here we encounter the crux of faith, sincere faith, honest faith. I believe, but I also don't believe, so help. The Father's faith becomes genuine. It starts to matter, not when he's mustered up enough of it, but when he risks everything on what little he has of it. You see, faith, it cries out. It's helplessness that matters, not holiness. Helplessness, not holiness. If saving faith required holiness, we would be in real trouble. And you know, thankfully, Jesus, he doesn't respond with, don't you know who, I'm, who you're talking to? I am the glory of God. Go home, repent, examine your heart, clean yourself up, abide by the law, Get enough faith in the right quantity and then come back to me and ask if I can help you. This is how religion operates. Religion says do the right things and then you'll reach your true self. Do the right things and then you'll be acceptable. Do the right things and then you'll reach enlightenment or transcendence or acceptance or nirvana. But even some forms of Christianity work this way. Believe enough and then you'll be healed. You ever heard that? They're dead wrong. Be holy enough, and then you'll be accepted by God. Have you ever felt that? It's dead wrong. This is not what Jesus asks of us. Why is that? Think about it. If the man came back and had done all these things, cleaned himself up, became really pious, his faith then would be in himself. His faith then would be in his own holiness. His faith would be in his own actions. His faith, in other words, would be in his faith. He would be approaching God saying, I've done my part. Now I deserve your help. That's not faith. That's entitlement. It's not faith. It's entitlement. You see, faith is a reaction to our own helplessness. It's aware of how small and inadequate we are. It's aware of our imperfection. It's aware of how frail we can be. It's aware that we're at best conflicted, but nevertheless, faith, it cries out. And this means you can be full of doubt. 
This means you can struggle to understand aspects of our faith. This means you can be uncertain and that you can have hard questions. In fact, you will likely experience all of these things in your lifetime. And the relief is that you don't have to hide when your faith is conflicted at best. Faith, though, cries out. Not trusting in the quality of your faith, but trusting in the one you're calling toward. Because our faith is in Jesus, not in ourselves. Our faith is in his faithfulness, not our own. So what is faith? Here's a definition for you. Faith is believing in Jesus and trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus alone. Faith is believing in Jesus and trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus alone. And when we direct our faith toward Jesus, what does he say? What does he say? What's impossible for humanity is, is possible for me. In other words, I will not disappoint. Jesus won't disappoint us. Our faith is only as good as what we put it in. And our faith in Jesus will deliver, not because we have enough faith, but because Jesus is faithful and he doesn't disappoint. The Father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. What does Jesus do? He does what no one else was able to do. He receives the Son and he heals him. Years of suffering and torment gone in an instant. It's beautiful. But we're still a little tense, aren't we? Because... Faith in Jesus doesn't remove all the risk and difficulty we might face in life. First, faith in Jesus isn't without risk because faith in Jesus doesn't mean that you get everything you want the way you want when you want it. If you need healing, Jesus can still heal today. But you can also cry out to the one you believe is able to heal and not receive healing. Does that mean you don't have enough faith? or that your faith is useless and that Jesus is disappointing you? No. Goodness, no. I don't presume to have all the answers, but what I do know is that even in our turmoil, even in our suffering, even in our difficulties, God can use those things to shape and form us, not as a way of punishment, but as a way of using his grace to so deeply saturate our lives and transform us. But I know what you may be thinking. This is why I don't want to have faith in God, because it might not actually change all the present. You know, so I'm just going to believe in the here and now. But here's the thing. If you only believe in the here and now, if you place your faith in that faith statement, there will be no resolve. All the loss, all the hurt, all the heartache, all the injustices in the world, all the unresolved things in your life and the relationships around you, you will die and that will be it. That will be the resolution. You see, it's only faith in Jesus that can assure us of the ultimate resolution because faith in Jesus comes with this, with the, the, the promise. It'll ultimately be yes. No matter how the suffering and the torment and the, the hurt happens in this world between now and heaven's shores, we know that the promises will ultimately be yes, that he will deal with the suffering and the hurt and the injustices and the things that have plagued our lives. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So while we may struggle on this side of eternity, Jesus ultimately will not disappoint. It's a declaration of faith. But secondly, faith is not without risk. 
Because you will experience disappointment from other people still, even other Christians. We're all imperfect. If anyone in this room disagrees with that statement, it's proof of the statement. We're all broken. Some of you got it. We're all fluctuating through our faith. We hurt one another. We struggle to do what is right. And sometimes we can look at this reality and see how messy the church is and we can think, why am I doing this to myself? Why put my faith in Jesus when it appears to make no real difference? And you can start to feel disappointed. And, and, and simultaneously, you might be on the outside looking in and being like, this is no different in here than it is out here. Why would I want to sign up? But genuine faith doesn't judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. If this father turned away after he was disappointed by the followers of Jesus, he would have missed out. But so often that's what we do. We look at a caricature or we were hurt by someone and we say, I'm, I'm done with this whole Jesus thing. Look, I'm not here to defend the church's mistakes or shortcomings. We're full of them. But to turn away from Jesus because of shortcomings in people is to turn away from the very reason of why Jesus came. Because while we're unable, he is able. And we need the church full of broken and beautiful people who have to work out their imperfections with one another, who are sometimes faithful and sometimes faithless, because it's in that place that Jesus is here and alive and encountering us. He's not hanging out with the perfect and the holy. He's hanging out with the helpless. And he will walk with us and do the slow and thorough work of transforming our lives and our souls. He will not disappoint. But this passage is not over yet. Jesus, he heals the boy, but it concludes with verses 28 and 29. Why were we not able to cast it out? The disciples ask once they're at his house. And he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What went wrong, Jesus? We've cast out demons before. Why not this one? And Jesus, he responds, this kind. Most of the scholars I read on this agree. Uh, think of it more like a statement of species, like the species of demons, demons generally, not just this specific one. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, you didn't pray. You tried to cast out a demon and you did not pray. Walter Grunman is a theologian who said a lot more wrong than he said right, but he got it right about prayer. Um, I, okay, I have to now qualify that. I didn't want to qualify it. I found this great quote by Walter Grunman reading it, and then I found out he, he was a Nazi, and I was really torn about quoting him, but all truth is God's truth, and he was wrong about a lot of stuff. He's right about this. Cool? Cool. <laughs> I should probably just sit down at this point. <laughs> Prayer is faith turned to God. Prayer is faith turned to God. I love that. Say it with me. Prayer is faith turned toward God. Faith is directing ourselves to God. It's relating to God. In other words, disciples, if you didn't pray... It's because your faith wasn't turned toward God. If you had faith in God, you would pray. And since you didn't pray, it's evidence that you're still without understanding. But honestly, we're not much better. How is your prayer life? 
It's the truest evidence of our relationship with God. It's the truest evidence of our faith. Is it lacking? Is your prayer life a struggle? Is it a priority? Do you even want to improve? Is it a joy? Is it a burden? Do you feel like you're just speaking to the air? Does it sometimes just feel useless to even ask? Is it sometimes there and often non-existent? What does this say about our faith? What does it say about my faith? No wonder the true cry of faith is, I believe, help my unbelief. Belief and unbelief can simultaneously exist in us. We can be both faithful and faithless depending on the moment. But have you ever wondered then why does God continue to bear with us? Why does he bear with such a faithless people? Why does he keep working with these disciples who fail over and over to get it? Because God either works with faithless people or he works with no one at all. There's no nook or cranny in all of the universe where you're going to find a group of people who have it all together. But how can God do this then? How can a holy God bear with the faithlessness of all these people? He has compassion for us. We may be faithless and disappoint him, but he will not disappoint us. And how do we know? Because Jesus was faithful for us. He walked in faithfulness all the way to the cross. And on the cross, he even experienced the horror of separation from God, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if anyone had a reason to say, my faith makes no difference, things are too broken, too for God, it would be Jesus on the cross experiencing that torment. And what does he do? He prays. His faith is uh, unwavering. And what does he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know that what they do. He won't disappoint because he's faithful for us in the places that we could never stand. And so we can be assured that he will fulfill every promise of God for us. Because these miracles we see that we find a little hard to comprehend, healings and exorcisms and the like, they're always just a sign and a picture of the world that is to come. You see, Jesus, he promises abundant eternal life, a new creation where evil is eradicated and all tears are wiped away and suffering is gone and disease erased and death defeated and wrong set right and losses returned with gain and joy for mourning and beauty for ashes. And sometimes we get glimpses of this here and now, but we are assured in Christ that we will experience that when we arrive on heaven's shore in a moment. We will be transformed. We will be changed, and we will experience the glory of Christ living in us. And that is just barely a partial picture of what's to come. And when the faithfulness of Jesus grips us, when you realize that he's faithful to you even when you're faithless to him, it's not condemning. It doesn't produce shame for our failures or shortcomings. It's actually deeply satisfying It's a peaceful contentment. It's a joy deeper than happiness because we don't have to bank on anything we can do because everything we need has been done for us. But that's why we pray. Because our faith turns us to God who's faithful to the faithless, even a faith that prays, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus will not disappoint. 